Welcome to the Kingdom Way Podcast. My name is Justin Gravat, and I hope that this will be a place where we can have meaningful conversations about the Christian faith to better help us follow Jesus, the living and reigning King. My goal is that through these theological discussions, we can better learn about the way of Jesus, which will profoundly influence how we live each and every day. The gospel of the kingdom of God, the good news Jesus preached, offers a new way of living, and that requires that we take seriously what Jesus taught and how he lived. But this work is absolutely worth it, as following and practicing this kingdom way of Jesus leads to an abundant and flourishing life as we connect learning Back in 1855, a young pastor named Charles Spurgeon opened his sermon by saying, quote, It has been said that the proper study of mankind is man, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of the Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God, is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God. The most excellent study for expanding the soul is the knowledge of the Godhead and the glorious Trinity. Nothing will so enlarge the intellect, nothing so magnify the whole soul of man, as a devote, earnest, continued investigation of the great subject of the deity. End quote. And as to that very subject of the triune God we will be talking about today, I'm honored to have on my show Dr. Madison Pierce. Dr. Pierce is a professor at Western Theological Seminary and received her PhD at Durham University and her MDiv from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Dr. Pierce is the New Testament editor for reviews of biblical and early Christian studies, as well as a co-host of the Two Cities podcast. Dr. Pierce, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Thank you for having me on, Justin. It's a pleasure. The Trinity is, is one of my favorite subjects to think about and study in theology. And in a real sense, the triune God, I'm sure you'd agree, is at the center of our faith. God is the primary actor in the story of reality. Now, common language used by Christians that God is one being who eternally exists as three persons. So there's one essence, one substance that is God, and he eternally exists as three persons, the Father, the Word, or the Son, and then the Spirit. Do you think this is a helpful way to unpack and speak about God as revealed in the biblical data, or would you frame it differently just to start the conversation? Yeah, that's a good, that's a good question. I think that because this is language that's been tried and tested and sort of accepted through history, that it's a really good starting point. Um, But I recognize that because some of these words that we use, like being and even like substance or person, Um, that they have really different meanings in our modern era. I mean, person is maybe the best example of this because when we think about a person, we think of someone very individual and very distinctive. You know, someone's personhood is their dignity and things like that. I mean, we could go on and on about the kind of distinctives that this language has. But that's very different when we're talking about God existing as one being in three persons, because really we're not trying to create separation or significant distinction among the three. We're trying to say that they have that they are distinct, but again, not separate. This is using some language from Tertullian that's sort of classic. And so it's not about their individualism. It's about their expression 
sorry, I'm already getting into some like complicated words in the history of the tradition, but um, it's about their distinctiveness, but distinctiveness within a unity. Right. It seems like, and we'll get into this a little bit later, but it's easy to swing to one extreme or the other, focusing too much on the unified where you lose the distinctiveness of each person or focusing too much on the distinctive aspects of each person of the Trinity and then losing that unified aspect. So it's sort of holding both in tension, which can be difficult at times. I'll see teachers when attempting to showcase the evidence for the Trinity, they'll often stack up verses that talk about there being one God, and then they'll turn to verses which say, Jesus is God, the Father's God, and the Spirit is God. And then they'll say, okay, therefore, there's one God and three persons, and then we kind of have this Trinitarian model And I think there's some value in approaching the text that way. But if you had just five to eight minutes, what kind of passages would you start with? I realize entire books have been written on this, kind of proving the Trinity from the Bible. But what do you see as some of the strong starting points? And where would you take people to start unpacking this doctrine? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. I... I personally am not sure that there's any single text that teaches the Trinity. Um, And this is a little controversial for me to say, maybe especially for me to say, because I've written a book about the way that a particular biblical text reflects a sort of triune understanding of who God is. But it's an entire book. Um, So some of my work is on Hebrews. And I generally would go to Hebrews because it's the book that I can pull out of my back pocket, but I can't point to a particular text there. What I can do is to say, here are the broad claims that the author is making. Here are the characterizations of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that support our understandings from early Christian history of what it means for God to be triune. But I I don't think that some of those those single texts necessarily teach the Trinity, they reflect the Trinity. A passage I, I think of is at the end of Matthew's gospel, where there seems to be this singular name, and then the three persons are listed out. Do you think that's a interesting place to start when talking about the Trinity? Um, sort of, I know Richard Bauckham talks about this divine identity, Jesus and the Spirit being within that divine identity. And that maybe is a way to kind of start articulating from the biblical texts, this divine name maybe shared among the persons. Yeah. So that's a good starting point. And we can say that given our understanding of who God is and given our previous understanding of the Trinity, that this supports that. Um, But really what that text does is it creates a unity, but it doesn't give us any indication about what the distinction is, apart from the fact that we can identify this Lord or God as Father, Son, and Spirit at this particular instance, or Jesus and Spirit. I don't remember exactly what title is applied there. And so that's that's more what I mean, is that there are some more uh, complex distinctions that we, we want to have in place when we really talk about teaching the Trinity. And the biblical text reflects those teachings that come out later from my perspective. We have nothing in the New Testament that says anything about God, Father, Son, Spirit being one being or substance. But we see the we see a reflection of the unity of the three persons and the application of titles like God and Lord, the sort of special actions of those um, within the divine identity, you know, to sort of use Bauckham's language. But 
we don't hear that claim made that there's an ontological unity for these three persons. And so that's that's why I find there, there to be just a little bit of a, a gap between what we can do with the biblical text. Sure. I know often what the New Testament authors will do is apply certain passages to God the Father in the Old Testament to Jesus and maybe even the Spirit. Do you see that as a, a convincing way to think of Jesus being Yahweh in some sense? Yeah, I personally do find that compelling. There's some who've kind of pushed against that idea mm-hmm. that it's, you know, it's, it does as much work as a lot of people want it to. Um, but I actually, I do agree that the, um, that taking texts that refer to Adonai um, or to the Lord um, and identifying more specifically the Lord as the Father, the Son, or the Spirit, particularly the Spirit or the Son in the New Testament is a way that our New Testament authors are telling us this is a way that the Spirit and Son have been present and working in our midst from the beginning. Um, And sometimes we see, like in Hebrews, some interactions among uh, the, like between the Father and the Son. The really classic example is the interpretation of Psalm 110 that we find in the New Testament. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The New Testament authors interpret this as a dialogue between the Father and the Son. You know, as a side note, in the original context, that second Lord probably wasn't God, you know, but but it does allow for this this distinction within the divine name where kurios appears both times. So we see something like that, or we see a text where there's no particular divine person identified. And the spirit, for example, is identified as like the one in the pillar of cloud, you know, um, Mm. yeah, the pillar of cloud or fire, you know, something like that. So um, a more like a disambiguation or a specification or something like that. It really is subtle too, because if you're not aware of the Old Testament passages and not aware that that original context, who that was being spoken of, you would just read right past it in the New Testament. Is, is the technical word there prosopological? Yeah, um, that's actually the approach that I take in my book as well. Okay. Um, and so, and apply it to Hebrews. Uh, that's specifically, um, there are a lot of different ways of reading or for New Testament authors to read scripture Trinitarianly or to read it Christologically or pneumatologically, whatever. One specific specific method that they use is something like prosopological exegesis, or at least in my humble opinion. Um, and so this is where a figure or character is identified that was not previously identified or specified in the Jewish scripture. Psalm 110 is a great example. But then we also have something like Psalm 22. So um, this is a text that, although it's often associated with David, it could very well be David, and that's that's a fine interpretation. Um, the broader history of interpretation, even within Jewish traditions, is that this is just a righteous sufferer. And we see this text, this righteous sufferer, given a name in the New Testament, and the name is Jesus, where from the cross he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or in Hebrews, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters in the midst of the assembly, I will sing your praise. That's also a quotation from that same psalm. And it's one where the author does the, you know, author of Hebrews does the same thing. He says, this unidentified figure 
is Jesus. This is his voice. And so that would be an, a good example of prosopological exegesis. Another term that often comes up in Trinitarian discussions is the economic trinity and the imminent trinity. And just so listeners are aware, the idea there is not that there's two sets of trinities or anything like that. The economic has to do with the history of salvation or what God does in human history. And then the imminent side would be a discussion of the eternal or essential or ontological aspects of the Trinity. So it's a focus on how they act versus their essential being. Do you find these terms to be helpful? I know a lot of scholars really put a lot of emphasis that the economic Trinity says a lot about the ontological Trinity, that there's a huge crossover there. And others are a little more skeptical that there really isn't we can't draw too much from how God acts in history to his very being. So yeah, do you find these terms helpful? And then how would you make the connection between the two? For the most part, I find them helpful. But there is a point as you're analyzing the works of God where it does become complicated. I mean, even in um, the examples that I was just giving where um, the Lord says to my Lord, um, you know, there's this conversation between the persons in some models, that has to be something like an economic conversation because there can't be interaction, even analogically, um, can't be interaction within the imminent Trinity. Um, and so then this has to be within, like, within the economy of salvation and, and things like that. So there's just some fluidity there that I think is necessary that we have to kind of throw our hands up to mystery. Um, in this particular instance and say, we can see some very clear instances where what is said of God is about how God interacts with the world. We can draw some conclusions about who God is in himself and how the three persons relate to one another in, in himself. And then as far as how those two things relate, I mean, I've gotten to some of that. I would be inclined to say that everything expressed outwardly is consistent with everything that's expressed inwardly. But because there is so much mystery about the imminent Trinity, I think that developing systems of theology, uh, especially systems of theology that are contra historic teaching of the church um, on the basis, you know, from the economic to the imminent, I think that's really dangerous. I think that we've, we have 2,000 years of historic Christian teaching on the imminent Trinity and what's okay to say about the imminent Trinity and what's not. And we really shouldn't be messing with it. If it's not broke, don't fix it. I've seen sometimes, this doesn't happen very often, but there'll be scholars who recognize you know, Jesus being subordinate to the Father and coming from the Father and doing the Father's will and then putting that back into eternity with that eternal relationship, that ontological relationship between father and son. And I think I'm always a little hesitant to be too dogmatic with that. Just what we can say about how Jesus, for example, decides to willingly enter history and what he does in his earthly ministry. And then to what extent do we then transfer that back into eternity? I think, like you said, it's always going to be consistent with God's nature. But then I think you get into these discussions of eternal generation or eternal processions within the triune God. And I'm always just a little bit hesitant to get too dogmatic with those discussions 
just because I'm not sure if we can be too confident in that transfer there. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, that would be a, an example from my perspective, uh, what you named about the question as to whether the son is eternally subordinate or submissive mm-hmm. to the father. From my perspective, that would be an example of using the economic trinity to impose something on the imminent that's that from my perspective is contrary to the history of christian teaching i'm not one that would say that's obviously heretical or arian or anything like that but i don't think that it is the historic teaching of the church and so i think that that imposition is is problematic and it mm-hmm. um is something to to be avoided i've heard questions of you know could for example the father have gone to the cross and the son taken the role of the spirit and you know so on you can get into all sorts of combinations there i know a lot of that is is going to be speculative but some people have some pretty strong views on the roles that each person plays and it could not have been different it could not have been otherwise do you have any any thoughts on on that yeah The reflection, the names of these figures, the processions that we know, they reflect this. Um, So you say, could the son have remained in heaven and the father come to earth? Well, if the father had come, you know, say, or to use the classical designations, if the first person of the Trinity had come to earth um, and it somehow was possible for him to still be called the first person, well, he wouldn't be the father. He would be the son because he's the one sent. And the father cannot, or sorry, the second person, mm-hmm. um, you know, can no longer be the son because he's not eternally generated from the first person. And it just gets super complicated. So I think that the persons, let's say, would just start with three and they're sort of neutral and have no particular defining characteristics that they amongst themselves at the time when they are neutral, they came up with a different schema. Okay. But we wouldn't know them otherwise. You know, we would still receive them as father, son, and spirit. And because they are one, ultimately, it really doesn't make a difference as to how this all shakes out, I don't think. So sure. Sure. Yeah. Sorry, that was super strange, but I hope it no, makes no. sense. <laughs> When you start getting to these discussions and nuances, it kind of gets strange a little bit, but sometimes those are the most fun conversations to have. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying my conversation with Madison Pierce. I wanted to share a related thought with you about the person of Jesus. In Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, he writes, quote, in the four gospel accounts given to us in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 89 chapters of biblical text, there's only one place where Jesus tells us about his own heart. That place is in Matthew 11:28 to 30, where Jesus says, quote, Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The heart in the Bible is less about our emotional state rather the central animating feature of who we are and what we do. What is the central defining and directing aspect for Jesus? He tells us he is gentle and humble in heart. Yes, Jesus is the conquering King of Kings, God with us, the victorious Lion of Judah, and he is simultaneously the one who humbled himself to the point of death as the sacrificial lamb. 
He is the one who gives rest to those who are weary and carrying heavy burdens. The one condition is to come to him. We are to learn from Jesus, and that will lead to us finding rest for our souls. I find this to be such a wonderful and encouraging thought. This is the king we follow, the one who is mighty and powerful, and also compassionate and gracious. As Dane Ortland concludes, quote, if we are asked to say only one thing about who Jesus is, we would be honoring Jesus' own teaching if our answer is gentle and lowly in heart. When we talk about the Trinity, I think there's a lot of misconceptions among scholars, but also pastors and lay Christians, and I'm not here to call out people. But I think there are mistakes that the early church recognized. And here we can talk about, you know, mistakes like modalism, which states there are not three distinct persons, but God revealing himself in different modes, or even tritheism, which we've sort of talked about briefly, where you're really separating out the persons and there isn't a strong unified approach. And I think of even pastoral examples where, you know, the egg, the famous egg example, three parts, but one egg. And I'm curious how you would address some of these common misconceptions and some ways maybe we can reframe that's a more accurate portrayal of the biblical God. Yeah. Oh, that's a good question. Thankfully, I don't hear a lot of articulations of who God is that fall into either of those categories, modalism, tritheism. Though in the latter instance with tritheism, you know, a classic example would be the idea that God sort of abandons Jesus on the cross. Mm. Um, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That that's a sort of literal representation of where he's at at that time. Um, if the father and the son are one, then that's not a thing. Um, you know, that it for them to, for Jesus to be separate from God would be effectively tritheism. They would have to be distinct and separated. So that would be one that is quite common, I think. But the most common errors that I see are simply apathy, really. There's sort of an understanding where like, if I just say I believe in the Trinity and and then say, and it's for theologians to tell me what that means, then that's its own kind of error. Because the, as you said at the beginning of this, to know God is to know him as triune. And this is at the central of our theology. And really, it should be at the central of our practice as well. And so what I would hope in coming generations is to see the triunity of God, um, the Trinity, to to see it become a lot more central in our worship and our practices, and for people to take responsibility in their own personal theologies for what it means to define the Trinity and to understand it more fully. Yeah, I love that point. And I wonder, do you have thoughts on, you know, when I'm engaging with someone and let's say we disagree on a certain theological subject, to me, that's sometimes easier to engage with that person because if they really care about their position, then we both at least care about truth and the evidence. But if someone just couldn't care less, and I see that in certain areas of theology, that kind of person is harder for me to relate to because they don't even really care to have the conversation. They don't care to hear my view. They don't really have their own view. Yeah. I I don't know about a more direct approach, um, what it would look like. I mean, of course, if you have some sort of leadership role in a church, then, you know, working through studies on books related to the Trinity or, you know, a series on Trinity in the Bible or something like that would be awesome. But beyond that, I think it's just modeling 
an appreciation for the triune God in your prayers and in your ministries and your sermons and things like that. Here at Western, uh, one of our beloved professors of old always prayed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Every Hmm. prayer begins in that way. And so you hear that from time to time in the worship of others here that they've caught that. And and so that's a piece of our kind of shared history. And it's a way that our community reflects that importance. We always have in my church, the opening greeting has a reference to Father, Son, and Spirit and Hmm. the benediction always, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And for me, that's a way of remembering that though that is the God that I worship in this setting. And so I think some of that, especially in contexts where it's not the norm to pray in those maybe what feel like more formal ways or to talk about God, you know, in three persons, doing that it will raise it, like it perks people's ears up. I come from a liturgical tradition. And so um, in my tradition, we do the sign of the cross, which is representative of the triune God. And I do that wherever I am, you know, when I'm walking down the street, listening to the daily office, I'm, you know, doing the sign of the cross when it's appropriate within the prayer service. And, and so that's a way that I, with my body, um, signal the fact that God is triune. So these are maybe some like trivial examples, but there are ways that I try to reflect God in three persons in my everyday life. Yeah. The church we go to, my wife and I go to throughout the service, we'll say the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. Like you mentioned, it, it, these embodied practices, I think, are really helpful. And if, you, if it's done in a community as well, there's always more power when it's a communal practice. Yeah. Going back to the misconceptions, we mentioned the egg example. I think William Lane Craig, this one's sort of interesting, but I don't know if you've heard, he uses Kerberos. The Greek from Greek mythology is the <laughs> three-headed dog. Have you heard of this? Are I you familiar? Know. No, I haven't. Yeah, he's gotten some pushback on it. Yeah. I think the idea he's trying to convey is there's one being and then three centers of consciousness. And of course, all analogies and examples are going to fall short. But do you think there's they're useful? Do you think it's helpful to have these examples? Or should we just ditch them entirely? I think images are important and evocative for listeners. And especially if you think about the youngest little theologians in our midst, our children, youth, um, even new Christians, being able to illustrate aspects of who God is are important, but I think always with disclaimers. So if you want to say something like God is one, and you know, then you can use something like the water analogy, which is definitely prone to something like modalism. But then you have to stop it and to say, hmm. okay, you know, all these three things are water, the liquid, the solid, the gas. But this analogy breaks down. You have you have sure. to say that part and to make very clear why. And then maybe to complement it with another analogy that maybe goes too far the other way, which could be Cerberus or, you know, could be the egg or, or whatever. And to say, we do not have a perfect analogy that mm. represents this. I think in some ways, an analogy that works well for people that is still mysterious and still is actually really beyond our grasp, but, but for some reason, people don't find it as difficult is Jesus as God-man. I actually think that's more confusing and complex and, <laughs> you know, paradoxical and all of that. But 
for some reason, people think they know exactly what that means. And Hmm. so I think that that really helps that God is both three in one in the same way that Jesus is both God and man that provides some sort of image that they can grasp. Yeah, that that's fascinating because it brings up a whole nother discussion of this hypostatic union of Jesus and the incarnation. And when I've studied these different topics, sometimes I've wondered, should you start with Christology and understanding how God or how Jesus is truly God and truly man, and then move to the Trinity? Or do you start with the triune nature of God and then move to Christology? Or you know, do you do both simultaneously? Because I think it, it's true how you understand Jesus being the God man is going to influence your view of God as triune, and they both sort of complement and enrich each other. Yeah. Um, I personally would begin with theology proper still. Um, I mean, really, it depends on the context. You know, if you're preaching on a text where Christology is really clearly the focus, then of course, start there um, and then maybe move to theology. But if it's a more sort of abstract venue or something like that, or, you know, if I were writing a systematic theology, then I would definitely begin with theology proper. And part of that is because I actually, you know, this is in a sense kind of coming back to not necessarily a misconception, but a misuse of Trinitarian theology or, you know, a improper focus or something like that. I see a lot where the idea that Jesus is in the Old Testament almost becomes this like covering that then undoes a lot of good Trinitarian theology with respect to the triune God throughout history. I think we should read scripture with the idea that Jesus is present, that the spirit is present. But I actually, to try to get people's attention, I don't talk about reading all of scripture Christologically or Christocentrically, that kind of thing. I actually more frequently will say reading scripture Trinitarianly, um, Mm. you know, kind of making up that adverb. To remind people that to say that Jesus is present is not to say that the Spirit and Father are not. It's just the more striking claim. That's another reason that I would start with theology proper before moving to Christology, because it's really important to me that although the work of Jesus is indispensable and is the work and the revelation of God that most directly affects us and is related to us in Scripture, it can't be separated from the work of the Father and the Spirit. So probably controversial to some degree, but that's my thoughts. <laughs> no, I like that. It's 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 a more holistic approach, this Trinitarian reading versus merely uh, Christocentric reading. You're not denying that. You're just saying it's a little bit more than that, which I like. That. It's a both and, which I always yeah. appreciate. So as we close here, I'd like to wrap up by asking – how this information about the Trinity influences our daily lives as we follow King Jesus. You know, I think a flourishing life requires accurate information. So how does this understanding these ideas about God help us to love God better, help us to love others better? So just really tangibly, what what does this information do in our day-to-day life? The thought that comes to mind is that when we have a full picture of God as triune, then we're less likely to perpetuate some of the unhelpful mischaracterizations of the father, for example. You think of the presentation of God that is often critiqued of God being, you know, harsh or violent or whatever, and Jesus being the opposite. 
we, to whatever extent we emphasize or caricature these aspects of who a particular person is, um, you know, some people are super into the spirit. And so that undoes the the foundations and sometimes I'm caricaturing a little bit, but sometimes the stability of what it means to come within this tradition. So I think that the triunity of God, it allows us to have to ask the question, what does it mean for God at all times to be the God who judges and at all times to be the God who died on the cross on our behalf? Because those two things are always in conversation with one another. The mercy and justice of God hold together best when we think about the full picture of, of how God is revealed in Scripture across time. And I think that that is easiest to grasp when we remember that Father, Son, and Spirit are one. Yeah, that's fascinating to think about. I'm sure all of us are more naturally drawn to certain attributes of God, more naturally relate to those attributes. I think you're calling for a more holistic approach. I'm reminded of in John 17, Jesus says that eternal life is to know the only true God. And eternal life then is not merely about living forever. It's also about relating to and knowing and being known by the triune God. So thanks again for sharing your insight on this crucial topic of the Trinity. Thank you so much, Justin. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Kingdom Way. If you found the conversation helpful in your walk with Jesus, please consider giving the show a review on your listening platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.